Section four of My First Summer in the Sierra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. My First Summer in the Sierra by John Muir. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. June sixteen. One of the Indians from Brown's flat got right into the middle of the camp this morning, unobserved. I was seated on a stone, looking over my notes and sketches, and happened to look up, was startled to see him, standing grim and silent within a few steps of me, as motionless and weather-stained as an old tree-stump that had stood there for centuries. All Indians seemed to have learned this wonderful way of walking unseen, making themselves invisible like certain spiders I have been observing here, which, in case of alarm, caused, for example, by a bird alighting on the bush their webs are spread upon, immediately bounce themselves up and down on their elastic threads so rapidly that only a blur is visible. The wild Indian power of escaping observation, even where there is little or no cover to hide in, was probably slowly acquired in hard hunting and fighting lessons while trying to approach game, uh, take enemies by surprise, or get safely away when compelled to retreat. And this experience, transmitted through many generations, seems to at length to have become what is vaguely called instinct. How smooth and changeless seems the surface of the mountains about us! Scarce a track is to be found beyond the range of the sheep except on small open spots on the sides of the streams, or where the forest carpets are thin or wanting. On the smoothest of these open strips and patches deer-tracks may be seen, and the great suggestive footprints of bears, which, with those of many small animals, are scarce enough to answer as a kind of light ornamental stitching or embroidery. Along the main ridges and larger branches of the river Indian trails may be traced, but they are not nearly as distinct as one would expect to find them. How many centuries Indians have roamed these woods nobody knows, probably a great many, extending far beyond the time that Columbus touched our shores, and it seems strange that heavier marks have not been made. Indians walked softly and hurt the landscape hardly more than the birds and squirrels, and their brush and bark huts last hardly longer than those of the wood-rats, while their more enduring monuments, excepting those wrought on the forests by the fires they made to improve their hunting-grounds, vanish in a few centuries. How different are most of those of the white man, especially in the lower gold region! Roads blasted in the solid rock, wild streams dammed and tamed and turned out of their channels, and led along the sides of canyons and valleys to work in mines like slaves, crossing from ridge to ridge, high in the air, on low straddling trestles, as if flowing on stilts, or down and up across valleys and hills, imprisoned in iron pipes to strike and wash away hills and miles of the skin of the mountain's face, riddling, stripping, every gold gully and flat. These are the white man's marks made in a few feverish years, to say nothing of mills, fields, villages, scattered hundreds of miles along the flank of the range. 
Long will it be ere these marks are effaced, though nature is doing what she can, replanting, gardening, sweeping away old dams and flumes, levelling gravel and boulder piles, patiently trying to heal every raw scar. The main gold storm is over. Calm enough are the grey old miners scratching a bare living in waste diggings here and there. Thundering underground blasting is still going on to feed the pounding quartz mills, but their influence on the landscape is light compared with that of the pick-and-shovel storms waged a few years ago. Fortunately for Sierra scenery, the gold-bearing slates are mostly restricted to the foothills. The region about our camp is still wild, and higher lies the snow about as trackless as the sky. Only a few hills and domes of cloudland were built yesterday, and none at all to-day. The light is peculiarly white and thin, though pleasantly warm. The serenity of this mountain weather in the spring, just when nature's pulses are beating highest, is one of its greatest charms. There is only a moderate breeze from the summits of the range at night, and a slight breathing from the sea and the lowland hills and plains during the day, or stillness so complete no leaf stirs. The trees hereabouts have but little wind history to tell. Sheep, like people, are ungovernable when hungry. Excepting my guarded lily-gardens, almost every leaf that these hoofed locusts can reach within a radius of a mile or two from camp has been devoured. Even the bushes are stripped bare, and in spite of dogs and shepherds the sheep scatter to all points of the compass and vanish in dust. I fear some are lost, for one of the sixteen black ones is missing. June 17. Counted the wool-bundles this morning as they bounce through the narrow corral gate. About three hundred are missing, and as the shepherd could not go seek them, I had to go. I tied a crust of bread to my belt, and with Carlo set out for the upper slopes of the Pilot Peak Ridge, and had a good day, notwithstanding the care of seeking the silly runaways. I went out for wool, and did not come back shorn. A peculiar light circled around the horizon, white and thin, like that often seen over the auroral corona, blending into the blue of the upper sky. The only clouds were a few faint flossy pencillings, like combed silk. I pushed direct to the boundary of the usual range of the flock, and around it until I found the outgoing trail of the wanderers. It led far up the ridge into an open place, surrounded by a hedge-like growth of Ceanothus chaparral. Carlo knew what I was about, and eagerly followed the scent until we came up to them huddled in a timid, silent bunch. They had evidently been there all night, and all the forenoon, afraid to go out to feed. Having escaped restraint, they were, like some people we know of, afraid of their freedom, did not know what to do with it, and seemed glad to get back into the old familiar bondage. June 18. Another inspiring morning nothing better in any world can be conceived. No description of heaven that I have ever heard or read of seems half so fine. 
At noon the clouds occupied about point zero five of the sky, white filmy touches drawn delicately on the azure. The high ridges and hilltops beyond the woolly locusts are now gay with mondarella, clarkia, coreopsis, and tall tufted grasses, some of them tall enough to wave like pines. The lupins, of which there are many ill-defined species, are now mostly out of flower, and many of the compositae are beginning to fade, their radiant corollas vanishing in fluffy pappus, like stars in mist. We had another visitor from Brown's flat to-day, an old Indian woman with a basket on her back. Like our first caller from the village, she got fairly into camp and was standing in plain view when discovered. How long she had been quietly looking on I cannot say. Even the dogs failed to notice her stealthy approach. She was on her way, I suppose, to some wild garden, probably for lupin and starchy saxifrage leaves and rootstocks. Her dress was calico rags, far from clean. In every way she seemed sadly unlike nature's neat, well-dressed animals, though living like them on the bounty of the wilderness. Strange that mankind alone is dirty. Had she been clad in fur, or cloth woven of grass or shreddy bark, like the juniper and libocedrus mats, she might then have seemed a rightful part of the wilderness, like a good wolf at least, or a bear. But from no point of view that I have found are such debased fellow-beings a whit more natural than the glaring tailored tourists we saw that frightened the birds and squirrels. June 19. Pure sunshine all day. How beautiful a rock is made by leaf shadows! Those of the live-oak are particularly clear and distinct, and beyond all art in grace and delicacy, now still, as if painted on stone, now gliding softly, as if afraid of noise, now dancing, waltzing in soft, merry swirls, or jumping on and off sunny rocks in quick dashes, like wave embroidery on seashore cliffs. How true and substantial is this shadow beauty, and with what sublime extravagance is beauty thus multiplied! The big orange lilies are now arrayed in all their glory of leaf and flower, noble plants, in perfect health, nature's darlings. June 20. Some of the silly sheep got caught fast in a tangle of chaparral this morning, like flies in a spider's web, and had to be helped out. Carlo found them and tried to drive them from the trap by the easiest way. How far above sheep are intelligent dogs! No friend and helper can be more affectionate and constant than Carlo. The noble St. Bernard is an honour to his race. The air is distinctly fragrant with balsam and resin and mint, every breath of it a gift we may well thank God for. Who could ever guess that so rough a wilderness should yet be so fine, so full of good things? One seems to be in a majestic domed pavilion, in which a grand play is being acted with scenery and music and incense, all the furniture and action so interesting 
we are in no danger of being called to endure one dull moment. God himself seems to be always doing his best here, working like a man in a glow of enthusiasm. June 21 Sauntered along the river-bank to my lily-gardens. The perfection of beauty in these lilies of the wilderness is a never-ending source of admiration and wonder. Their rhizomes are set in black mould, accumulated in hollows of the metamorphic slates beside the pools, where they are well watered without being subjected to flood action. Every leaf in the level whirls around the tall polished stalks is as fine finished as the petals, and the light and heat required are measured for them, and tempered in passing through the branches of overleaning trees. However strong the winds from the noon rainstorms, they are securely sheltered. Beautiful hypnum carpets, bordered with ferns, are spread beneath them. Violets, too, and a few daisies. Everything around them sweet and fresh like themselves. Cloudland today is only a solitary white mountain, but it is so enriched with sunshine and shade, the tones of colour on its big domed head and bossy outbulging ridges, and in the hollows and ravines between them, are indefinably fine. June 22. Unusually cloudy. Beside the periodical shower-bearing cumuli there is a thin diffused fog-like cloud overhead, about point seven five in all. June 23. Oh, these vast, calm, measureless mountain days, inciting at once to work and rest, days in whose light everything seems equally divine, opening a thousand windows to show us God. Nevermore, however weary, should one faint by the way who gains the blessings of one mountain day. Whatever his fate, long life, short life, stormy or calm, he is rich for ever. June 24 Our regular allowance of clouds and thunder. Shepherd Billy is in a peck of trouble about the sheep. He declares that they are possessed with more of the evil one than any other flock from the beginning of the invention of mutton and wool to the last batch of it. No matter how many are missing, he will not, he says, go a step to seek them, because, as he reasons, while getting back one wanderer he would probably lose ten. Therefore runaway hunting must be Carlo's and mine. Billy's little dog Jack is also giving trouble by leaving camp every night to visit his neighbours up the mountain at Brown's Flat. He is a common-looking cur of no particular breed, but tremendously enterprising in love and war. He has cut all the ropes and leather straps he has been tied with until his master, in desperation, after climbing the brushy mountain again and again to drag him back, fastened him with a pole attached to his collar under his chin at one end, and to a stout sapling at the other. But the pole gave good leverage, and by constant twisting during the night the fastening at the sapling end was chafed off, and he set out on his usual journey, dragging the pole through the brush, and reached the Indian settlement in safety. His master followed, 
and making no allowance gave him a beating, and swore in bad terms that next evening he would fix that infatuated pup by anchoring him unmercifully to the heavy cast-iron lid of our Dutch oven, weighing about as much as the dog. It was linked directly to his collar close up under the chin, so that the poor fellow seemed unable to stir. He stood quite discouraged until after dark, unable to look about him, or even to lie down unless he stretched himself out with his front feet across the lid, and his head close down between his paws. Before morning, however, Jack was heard far up on the height, howling excelsior, cast-iron anchor to the contrary notwithstanding. He must have walked, or rather climbed, erect on his hind legs, clasping the heavy lid like a shield against his breast, a formidable iron-clad condition in which to meet his rivals. Next night, dog, pot-lid and all, were tied up in an old bean-sack, and thus at last angry Billy gained the victory. Just before leaving home Jack was bitten in the lower jaw by a rattlesnake, and for a week or so his head and neck were swollen to more than double the normal size. Nevertheless he ran about as brisk and lively as ever, and is now completely recovered. The only treatment he got was fresh milk. A gallon or two at a time forcibly poured down his sore poison throat. June 25 Though only a sheep camp, this grand mountain hollow is home sweet home, every day growing sweeter, and I shall be sorry to leave it. The lily gardens are safe as yet from the trampling flock. Poor, dusty, raggedy, famishing creatures, I heartily pity them. Many a mile they must go every day to gather their fifteen or twenty tons of chaparral and grass. June 26 Nuttall's flowering dogwood makes a fine show when in bloom. The whole tree is then snowy white. The involucres are six to eight inches wide. Along the streams it is a good-sized tree, thirty to fifty feet high, with a broad head when not crowded by companions. Its showy involucres attract a crowd of moths, butterflies, and other winged people about it, for their own and, I suppose, the tree's advantage. It likes plenty of cool water, and is a great drinker, like the alder, willow, and cottonwood, and flourishes best on stream-banks, though it often wanders far from streams in damp shady glens beneath the pines where it is much smaller. When the leaves ripen in the fall they become more beautiful than the flowers, displaying charming tones of red, purple, and lavender. Another species grows in abundance as a chaparral scrub on the shady sides of the hill, probably Cornus sessilis. The leaves are eaten by the sheep. Heard a few lightning-strokes in the distance, with rumbling, mumbling reverberations. June 26. The beaked hazel, Corylus rostrata, variety Californica, is common on cool slopes up toward the summits of the Pilot Peak Ridge. There is something peculiarly attractive in the hazel, like the oaks and the heaths of the cool countries of our forefathers, 
and through them our love for these plants has, I suppose, been transmitted. This species is four or five feet high, leaves soft and hairy, grateful to the touch, and the delicious nuts are eagerly gathered by Indians and squirrels. The sky, as usual, adorned with white noon clouds. June 28. Warm, mellow summer. The glowing sunbeams make every nerve tingle. The new needles of the pines and firs are nearly full-grown and shine gloriously. Lizards are glinting about on the hot rocks. Some that live near the camp are more than half tame. They seem attentive to every movement on our part, as if curious to simply look on without suspicion of harm, turning their heads to look back, and making a variety of pretty gestures. Gentle, guileless creatures with beautiful eyes, I shall be sorry to leave them when we leave camp. June 29. I have been making the acquaintance of a very interesting little bird that flits about the falls and rapids of the main branches of the river. It is not a water-bird in structure, though it gets its living in the water, and never leaves the streams. It is not web-footed, yet it dives fearlessly into deep swirling rapids, evidently to feed at the bottom, using its wings to swim with under water just as ducks and loons do. Sometimes it wades about in shallow places, thrusting its head under from time to time in a jerking, nodding, frisky way that is sure to attract attention. It is about the size of a robin, has short, crisp wings, serviceable for flying either in water or air, and a tail of moderate size, slanted upwards, giving it, with its nodding, bobbing manners, a Rhenish look. Its colour is plain bluish ash, with a tinge of brown on the head and shoulders. It flies from fall to fall, rapid to rapid, with a solid whirr of wing-beats like those of a quail, follows the windings of the stream, and usually alights on some rock jutting up out of the current, or some stranded snag, or rarely on the dry limb of an overhanging tree, perching like regular tree-birds when it suits its convenience. It has the oddest, daintiest, mincing manners imaginable, and the little fellow can sing, too—a sweet, thrushy, fluty song rather low, not the least boisterous, and much less keen and accentuated than from its vigorous briskness one would be led to look for. What a romantic life this little bird leaves on the most beautiful portions of the streams, in a genial climate with shade and cool water and spray to temper the summer heat! No wonder it is a fine singer, considering the stream-songs it hears day and night. Every breath the little poet draws is part of the song, for all the air about the rapids and falls is beaten into music, and its first lessons must begin before it is born by the thrilling and quivering of the eggs, in unison with the tones of the falls. I have not yet found its nest, but it must be near the streams, for it never leaves them. June 30 half cloudy, half sunny, clouds lustrous white. 
The tall pines crowded along the top of the Pilot Peak Ridge looked like six-inch miniatures exquisitely outlined on the satiny sky. Average cloudiness for the day about point two five, No rain. And so this memorable month ends, a stream of beauty unmeasured, no more to be sectioned off by almanac arithmetic than sun radiance or the currents of seas and rivers, a peaceful, joyful stream of beauty. Every morning, arising from the death of sleep, the happy plants and all our fellow animal creatures, great and small, and even the rocks, seem to be shouting, Awake! Awake! Rejoice! Rejoice! Come love us, and join in our song. Come! Come! Looking back through the stillness and romantic enchanting beauty and peace of the camp grove, this June seems the greatest of all the months of my life, the most truly, divinely free, boundless like eternity, immortal. Everything in it seems equally divine, one smooth, pure, wild glow of heaven's law, never to be blotted or blurred by anything past or to come. End of section 4